everyone, this is Pastor Dane Johansson from Agros Reformed Baptist Church in Gilbert, Arizona. Tonight I want to do a brief study on chapter 17 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, which is entitled, Of the Perseverance of the Saints. This doctrine, the doctrine called the Perseverance of the Saints, sometimes known as eternal or everlasting security, and in other denominations, primarily independent Baptist, it'd be known as once saved, always saved, and Ryrie also popularized that nomenclature as well, but the reform nomenclature is the perseverance of the saints. The reason I want to do this is that this doctrine is a very important doctrine to me. It's near and dear to my heart. It was really my introduction or my pathway, the door through which I walked into the reformed faith. Because of studying the perseverance of the saints and looking for the biblical teaching on the perseverance of the saints, this was one doctrine that really kind of opened my eyes to the entire Ordo Salutis or the Order of Salvation, um, basically the Reformed doctrine on, or the biblical doctrine, we should say, of how man is saved and what salvation is. Perseverance of the saints is very important because it is hope-giving, it's life-giving, it's joy-giving, it's assurance-giving. It gives us assurance. It teaches us just how overwhelmingly great God's love and his power is towards those who believe. And we know that that belief is itself a gift of God given to his elect people, those who believe upon him. They believe upon him because he has given them that faith to believe. We know that from Ephesians chapter 2. And that God's hand never lets go of us. Though we are unfaithful, though we deny him, yet he cannot deny himself. And he has chosen in himself to reveal himself as a God who saves. And he saves entirely and wholly and without exception. Salvation is no salvation if we can return to damnation. And a lot of circles that I was in when I first got saved believed that you could lose your salvation. I was heavily involved with the Assemblies of God and other Pentecostal denominations um, did a lot of work with them, and they do teach that. They teach that you can lose your salvation. They rail against the teaching that one can be saved always and uh, never lose their salvation. And ultimately, that's a papist doctrine. Ultimately, that's a Roman Catholic doctrine at its core. It's an anti-biblical doctrine. And it makes God weak at the end of the day. It makes God unable to save. If he cannot save fully from beginning to end, if he can lose those whom he has paid for in the death of Christ and regenerated by the power of his Holy Spirit, then he can't save at all. If you can be unsaved, then you were never saved to begin with. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You can't go back to the old creature. Once you are a new creature, you can't become an old creature or go back to a life dead. You can't die once you are born again. You can't go back into spiritual death. And so this doctrine that teaches against the perseverance of the saints that says that you can lose your salvation has done untold damage to probably millions of Christians throughout history. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is very clear that those who are saved are saved indeed. And those whom God shall save shall be saved. And that he who began a good work in us, namely Jesus Christ, or God, will 
bring it to completion. That work of salvation that he began in us, he will bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. We know that that is true. Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that we cannot be lost. He sought us out. He found us. He chose us. He redeemed us. He paid for our sins in full for those who believe. And they will never, ever have to pay for those sins, whether in purgatory or in some afterlife state or in this life or at all. Those sins are completely and finally paid for in the death of Christ. And so to teach that you can lose your salvation would be to deny that very core teaching that Christ died for the sins of man, for the sins of his elect people, the sins of his sheep. He is the good shepherd And he cares for his sheep. He finds his sheep. He gives them life. He cares for them. He saves them. He delivers them. And to have any kind of doubt about that will wreak havoc in the Christian's life. How can you approach God boldly in prayer if you're not sure that the sins you did yesterday or the night before or earlier in the day are not remitted? That you might have lost your salvation. That you might have undone what God has done. That makes God weak, and that makes our salvation no salvation at all, but rather a means of redeeming ourselves, a means of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and getting out of harm's way, when that is not what the Bible teaches, that we were dead in sins and transgressions, and that God redeemed us, not we. And the confession of faith that Agris Reformed Baptist Church holds to, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, written in 1689, well, finally published and circulated in 1689, lays out for us in chapter 17 three paragraphs on this, wherein they summate the Bible's teaching that those who are saved shall be saved. They shall persevere in faith. Now, we will look at this as we go through. We'll look at this as we go through some of the errors, what, what this doctrine teaches and what it does not teach. So let's go through. We'll start with paragraph 1 and make comments and refer to the scripture references as we go. So paragraph 1 of chapter 17 of the Perseverance of the Saints says this, Those whom God has accepted in the Beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, and given the precious faith of His elect unto, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved seeing the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, from which source he still begets and nourisheth in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. And though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take off yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock which by faith they are fastened upon, notwithstanding, through unbelief, and the temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them. Yet he is still the same, and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession, they being engraven upon the palm of his hands, and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity." So in this very first paragraph, they really lay out what the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is. Namely, that those whom God has accepted in the beloved, meaning 
in Christ. The beloved is Christ they're speaking, is what they're speaking of. Those who have been accepting the beloved, we see that language in Ephesians, accepting the beloved. We've been brought in and included into the work of Christ, into the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, the intercession of Christ. All of those things we partake in through our adoption as sons and union with Christ uh, by grace through faith. He's accepted us in the beloved. We are brought into a relationship with him. We are restored into a right standing with God. That's what it means to be accepted in the beloved. And so those whom God has accepted in the beloved, meaning all believers, effectually called, so in time, by the gospel, when they hear the gospel preached, somebody presents the gospel to them and they believe upon it, uh, that is when God effectually calls them. They not only hear it with the outward ear, but the ear of faith hears it, which is wrought in them by God, and they respond to it. They are effectually called. Not just called as in they hear the gospel and they reject it, but they hear the gospel, they respond to it in faith and love and obedience, and they come after him. That's what effectually called means. And sanctified by his spirit, meaning those whom... God has effectually called, the Holy Spirit indwells those whom he has effectually called. Those whom he saves, the Holy Spirit dwells within them, and they are sanctified, meaning set apart, made holy. Set apart is a holy thing unto God. That's what sanctified means, and they are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. They're made holy and given the precious faith of God's elect unto. That phrase meaning that we've been given this faith. All of the elect have been given the faith of Jesus Christ. You see that phrase used in um, Galatians, faith of Jesus Christ, to uh, chapter 2, verse 16. The faith of Jesus Christ, the very faithfulness that Jesus Christ served his Father with by the power of the Holy Spirit in his life, we are given that same faith. It's accounted to us. Can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, they say. So those whom we just laid out, they're sanctified by the Spirit, they're effectually called, they're accepting the beloved, they're given the precious faith of Christ himself. These, a.k.a. believers, Christians, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace. Meaning, they can never just enter into a time in their life where they don't believe at all. Or, where they totally or finally, meaning, they cannot at the end of their life be lost. They can never re- enter into a time of unbelief, of sin, of dead in sins and transgressions. They can never be unsaved. They'll never fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end, meaning they'll continue to walk in faith. They'll continue to walk in love and obedience towards Christ. They'll, they'll neither totally nor finally fall from this state of grace because it is a state of grace. It's sola gratia. And again, as we continue on, before we move on, again, the whole concept in the Reformation of sola gratia, sola gratia, faith al- or grace alone, sola gratia, grace alone, is that it's all grace. It has nothing to do with us. It's only God's grace. It's not any of our works. It's not any of our holding on to God that saves us or keeps us saved. And this persevering of ours is not even of ourselves. It's the gift of God and the grace of God, the power of God working and moving on us and through us and in us and all for his glory. They shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved, seeing the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, meaning they they don't change. He doesn't repent from his choice, his calling. If he's called us and he's effectually called us, given his Holy Spirit, he's not going to the next day be like, I don't love that person anymore. I don't choose to 
be the savior of that person anymore. I know I paid for their sins, but I don't really care. I bought it. It's mine to do whatever I want with. Throw it into hell. That's not God's modus operandi. That's not how God works. That's not what he does. What he says he shall do, he does. Indeed, his wills and his shalls are wills and shalls indeed, as I've said many times, quoting Spurgeon. The gifts and callings of God are without repentance. He's not someone who gives us a gift and then takes it back. From which source he still begets and nourisheth in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. So he'll bring us through this life, this life of sin and death and pain and sorrow and uncertainty. We can be certain through all this and have peace and love and joy because he's working all of those things in us for our entire life. We'll never finally nor totally fall away. We cannot because he has called us. He has chosen us. He has saved us and redeemed us and given us, given us his Holy Spirit. So we'll never enter into a time where we don't have that salvation. Those graces of the Holy Spirit, those gifts of the Holy Spirit will be with us unto immortality, meaning everlasting, unto eternal life. And they continue on, and though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, so referencing or making an allusion to Matthew 7 when Jesus talks about building your house upon the stone and not upon the sand, and those who built upon the stone, meaning faith in God, uh, faith in Christ, when the storms of life came, because they were built upon the solid rock of Christ, they didn't fall down. They, their home did not crumble, whereas those who built upon the sand, their homes crumbled. So he's saying, even though, uh, they continue on, and though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock, which by faith they are fastened upon. So if we are fastened upon and built upon the rock, which is Christ, his faithfulness, he cannot deny himself because he is God and man in one person. He's God and man in one person. He is as trustable as God is, who cannot lie. And he is the savior of those who believe. He is the savior of those who believe. And though all sorts of things happen in this life, all sorts of uncertainties and pains and sorrows and hardships, yet none of these storms of life will ever take us off the rock, which by faith we are fastened upon. They continue on, notwithstanding, or even though all this exists, even though there will be no people who fall away who are saved. They cannot and they will not. They just listed all this stuff. Even though storms of life come against them, they'll ultimately persevere in the faith. Notwithstanding all this, they say, through unbelief and the temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them. Yet he is still the same, and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation. So there is a sense... Though we will never be unsaved, though we'll never be finally and totally lost, there is still a real sense that we as Reformed believers need to recognize that people will stumble and fall through unbelief, the temptations of Satan, the flesh, the battle of the spirit and the flesh within us, and they, they war against each other so that we would not do those things which we would. You read Romans 7, you see Paul's conflict. You read Galatians, you see the conflict that exists within a believer. And he tells them to walk by the Spirit so they do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Why? Because the flesh is still there. And so through times of unbelief, meaning you're not following, you're not putting your trust upon Christ, you'll fall into sin. 
And through the temptations of Satan, you'll fall into sin. And you'll, for a time, have the love of God, the light of truth that comes from God, clouded and obscured. You won't see as clearly the truths that are from God, that they're that are written for us in Scripture, that are demonstrated to us in Christ Jesus. We'll have times where those things are darkened, they're clouded. We don't see them clearly. And yet they give us assurance here. They, they say, yet he is still the same, and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession, they, they being engraven upon the palms of his hands, and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. So they, they do give us that caveat there. And this is the error of once saved, always saved, that you can believe, you can profess, one, two, three, repeat after me, you say the sinner's prayer or whatever, and then you can live like the devil the rest of your life, not believe, go into atheism, go into Roman Catholicism, go into uh, Islam, and or live like a worldling in humanism, and you'll be fine. And you'll be fine. Because you said your little prayer at one time in your life, and you'll be okay. We have to avoid that error as well. True Christians will fall into all sorts of grievous things. They'll talk about that later. Can fall into all sorts of grievous times. They can sin very grievously against God. They can fall into times where they look like they're basically not a believer. They really can. And they can also fall into times where they don't enjoy the sweet communion that they desire and long for with God. They're not close to God. They're not, quote-unquote, on fire for the Lord, as you see people um, being. You know, you meet somebody and you're just like, wow, that, that person just loves the Lord. Well, there's often times that Christians f- don't appear that way. However, they shall be kept, he says. True believers will be kept. They will come to enjoy their purchased possession. But how will they be kept? How will they be kept? They'll be kept by the power of God unto salvation, not by their continual repentance, though they should repent. Not by their church attendance, though they should attend church. Not by their Bible reading, though they should read their Bible. Not by their prayer life, though they should pray. Not by their good works, though they should do good works. None of those things are what keep them saved or get them saved. Because they're the things that because they're not the things that got them saved, they are certainly not the things that shall keep them saved. No, it is instead by the power of God. It is all him. That's sola gratia from beginning to end. Grace alone. Grace, 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 grace alone. Only grace. Only God's power. He has chosen to do this thing, and so he, sh- he shall do it. It says that they're engraven upon the palm of his hands. And in, in, in Scripture, especially the Old Testament, the hands of God, his hand is extended to the, uh, towards a nation. His arm is extended towards a nation. What that represents is his power, his might. The arm of the flesh availeth nothing, right? The Scriptures say that. What they mean by that is the power of the flesh. So God's hand, we are, if we are engraven upon his hand, it means his power keeps us. His mighty hand of power, his, his hand of omnipotence, is whereupon we are, our, our names are graven upon that omnipotent power. The power of God keeps us unto salvation, not anything we do. We contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's it. That's it, and that's all. That's why it's sola gratia. And their names haven't been written in the book of life from all eternity. So we were singled out. We were singled out. We were set apart. From eternity, God and the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption, if you go back even farther, between the triune being of God, when they undertook to save mankind, they undertook to save mankind, well, 
when God did this, he then entered into a covenant of grace. And in that covenant of grace, in eternity past, our names were written in the book of life, in the Lamb's book of life. Our, our names are engraven there, just like they're engraven on the power of his hand. And because his hand was the hand that wrote our names in there, it is also the hand that brings us to salvation, his power and his power alone. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4, 4 and 5, it says, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So in eternity past, God chose to save us. He elected some to salvation. Who are those that he elected unto salvation? Those who believe. Those who believe. Those who are elected shall believe. Those who are set apart to be saved shall be saved by grace through belief, through faith. But that gives us great assurance. Ultimately, all this does is give us assurance, dear believer, that he saved us. And that it is so sure that it was written in the book of life from eternity past, from all eternity from all eternity. So we can be sure that if we believe, if we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, and he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. We will walk this life, though fraught with many perils, dangers, troubles, unbeliefs, temptations of Satan, sins that we commit. Though all these things will buffet us, we will still come out the other side unscathed because of who Christ is, because of who God is, his power, not ours, his power, not ours. This gives us great assurance. Paragraph two says, this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, as we just read, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with him, the oath of God, the abiding of his spirit, and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. So this perseverance of the saints, they're saying, doesn't depend on our own free will. We didn't enact ourselves into this, so therefore we can't choose to get out of it. We didn't choose to be saved, therefore we can't choose to be unsaved. It's God's decree alone. His immutable, unchanging decree is what they say. His decree of election. He chose us to be saved. He saw that there is this massive humanity, this giant massive humanity, and all of them are utterly undone, utterly undone, and completely left in their sin. They've undone themselves. They are open to the wrath of God and that alone, and they have nothing that they can offer. Nothing. Yet he sees them, and he chooses to save some. God would remain loving, just, merciful, and gracious had he chosen to save no one. God would remain loving, just, and merciful, and gracious had he chosen to save no one. He doesn't save any of the angels that sinned, only the elect angels that did not fall into sin. He didn't choose any of those angels that sinned to be saved. He did not save them. He did not redeem them, yet he redeemed redeemed some of the sons of Adam, some humans. And that is merciful, and it's due to his immutable decree, nothing of our own part, not our own free will. From our perspective, it may look like it was our free will, but it wasn't. The Bible is clear that it's not. So that's why, from our perspective, we are called to believe. 
you must put your faith in Christ. You must turn from sin and put your faith in Christ. However, that's not what is actually happening in the larger scheme of things. I mean, it is what's actually happening in that we actually do believe, but we're not believing out of our own free will. Christ makes us alive by the power of his Holy Spirit, and those who are made alive believe. He puts belief within them. He calls them to faith, and they respond in faith because he gives them that faith with which to respond to that call to believe. Depends upon the immutability of the decree of election, God's decree of election, not our own free will. And this flows from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with him. And union with him. It depends not upon our own free will, nor our merit, but upon Christ's merit. We are justified, we are made righteous, we are declared to be righteous, sanctified, made holy before God by Christ. In him, his work, not ours, not our free will, not our good deeds, not our attempting to continue to repent so that we might be saved or continue in a state of salvation. No, we repent, we obey, we follow because we believe and because we love God and because he empowers us to do so. So, though repentance and faith and good works sometimes can be a good gauge of where you're at in your spiritual life, they are not the infallible assurance of where you're at in your spiritual life. Because, as we read in the previous uh, paragraph, unbelief happens within us, the temptations of Satan come against us, our own flesh rises up against us, so we'll often not be walking the way we ought to be walking in our Christian faith. Yet, it depends not on our own free will. Our perseverance depends not on our own free will. Our salvation depends not on our free will. No, depends not upon our own free will or our own doings, but upon God's alone. God working in us by the Holy Spirit upon the efficacy of Jesus Christ, his merits, his intercession. And thus we are united with Christ to God. And it goes on to say the oath of God, meaning his promise, those whom he says he'll save. If you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. There you go. There's the oath of God, the abiding of his spirit within us, and the seed of God within us, meaning that new nature that he gave us, and the nature of the covenant of grace, meaning he's made a covenant. Those who believe shall be saved. Therefore, by the nature of the covenant of grace, he cannot break that, and nor can we, because we shall persevere, those who truly believe. And they end that paragraph by saying, from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. What does that mean? Well, it means this. That if that is true, if all this is true that they've said afore, that God, by his immutable decree, chose us for salvation, that he gave us his Holy Spirit, that he effectually called us, that he will do that which he pleaseth, and has been pleased to offer salvation to us and to save us by the effectual call and to bring us into union with Christ upon the merits of Christ, his works, his sacrifice on the cross on our behalf, then we will have certainty and infallibility. We'll have certainty because of the infallibility. If Christ has died for our sins. He has surely died for our sins. That's certain and infallible truth right there. That's what they're saying. So this is where 
this middle paragraph is teaching us where the impetus for perseverance comes from, where the faith in the fact that we will persevere comes from, where the ability and the power and the carrying along comes from and perseverance. Namely, the certainty and infallibility of the work of God in Christ Jesus, his son. Paragraph three, closing. And though they may, through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their uh, preservation, fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened, and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves, yet they shall renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ to the end. So we kind of already touched on this stuff, but that's how they end it. They start out saying, those who believe shall persevere in faith. And then the middle paragraph, this is due to the decree of God and the infallible and certain efficiency sufficiency of the work of Christ. And now this last one, they're saying all that, yes, is true. Yet sometimes Christians fall into grievous sins through the neglect of the means of grace, attending church, praying, reading scripture, partaking of the Lord's Supper, uh, fellowship with other believers and conference with other believers. Through those things, they'll fall into unbelief, the temptations of Satan, the f- of their flesh, of the world, will rage against them and they'll fall into grievous sins, it says. And sometimes continue therein, meaning backslide, fall into a life of sin again. And though they might be attending church, they might be doing all these all these Christian things and, and still do a, a great deal of, a great deal many outward Christian duties, yet they'll be living a life of sin and unbelief. A life of sin and unbelief, while being a outwardly good Christian. And they might even continue that way for a time. And it says that when they do this, they will incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Bring temporal judgments upon themselves. This is a hard saying indeed, is it not? But it's true. And this again gives us great assurance because we all have fallen into these kinds of things. You know, you might not have lived in backslidden life for months or weeks even. Maybe maybe you've done better than that. We've all fallen into sin even after being saved. We've all given into the flesh. We've all given into pride and anger and wrath and malice and sin of all of all manner and yet we will we shall be saved because we are saved we already are glorified with christ though our bodies are not yet redeemed though we do not partake in full in that glorification yet because we are effectually called justified and sanctified, we shall be glorified. And it's so sure as though we already were glorified. Now, I want to make sure I make a comment here on this. Those who fall into this lifestyle of sin, they backslide, right? It says they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit. God chasteneth them whom he loveth. 
Every son whom he loveth, he scourgeth, the scriptures tell us. Meaning he chastens us. He spanks us. He whips our back. He teaches us a lesson to bring us closer to him. He withdraws his presence from us for a time that we might seek after him and come to him and grow in our faith. But there's a big difference here between his displeasure and his grief over his children falling into sin and his wrath and anger. He's never wrathful towards us or angry towards us. He's only displeased or grieved. There's a big difference there. There's a fatherly love and tenderness there in his grief and displeasure over our sins. There is no wrath towards us. That's been completely absorbed in the death of Jesus Christ. The work of Christ upon the cross has absorbed all of God's wrath and anger towards sin and sinners for those who believe. If you believe upon Christ, if you are a Christian, if you are saved, there is no wrath left for you from God. Only his love. Only his tenderness, his sweetness, his care. And part of that includes he's displeased when we sin as Christians. He's displeased when we live in a lifestyle of sin and unbelief. And so he chasteneth us. He scourgeth us. He brings temporal judgments, it says right here in chapter 3, upon us. Temporal judgments to correct us. Not to punish us, but to correct us. To bring us back to himself. This should give us great assurance, right? It should. It should give us great, great assurance that God's working in us and through us. And even when we sin grievously and deny him over and over again and shout no in his face and do as we choose and fall into different seasons where this is more than at other times, yet he remains faithful, yet he remains loving towards us in his covenant of grace towards us because of his son, Jesus Christ, and that it is completely and entirely sure. But he will chasten us. He will chasten us when we fall into grievous sins and continue therein and continue to shout no. That doesn't mean we won't be saved or aren't saved, but it is fearful nonetheless. It's fearful nonetheless. And, and in fact, it, it wounds our conscience, it, it hardens our heart, it makes us not feel close to God, and it scandalizes others, it says. It hurts and scandalizes others for us to fall into a lifestyle of sin as Christians. Meaning it might push people away from the gospel. It might make Christ look like a fool before those whom we've been evangelizing or sharing the gospel with. It could lead to their hurt and their damnation even because our witness is destroyed. The witness of Christ is destroyed and they use it as an excuse to not believe. Or other Christians who were relying upon you and looked up to you and followed you now feel scandalized and hurt. They're scandalized, meaning... They don't understand why you're acting this way. They don't understand why you're walking in unbelief as a believer. When they look to you as a source of comfort, and this is how I'm supposed to live the Christian life, and now you're acting this way. We all have that. We all have people that we should be discipling and leading to the Lord, and they'll be looking to us. And it scandalizes the gospel. It scandalizes them and hurts them when we live in sin. So that's, again, the error of once saved, always saved. Oh, you can just live however you want. No, you can't. You shouldn't. You won't want to. You'll want to be close to God. You'll want to love God. If you don't love God, there's no love for God in your heart. There's no faith and trust upon him. Then you're not saved. 
That's not a matter of works. That's a matter of truth and reality. If you're a new creature in Christ Jesus, you'll want God. You'll love God. Look at Romans 7. The things that I want to do, those things I do not. And those things which I do not want to do, those I do. Meaning, things I want to do following after Christ, reading my Bible, sharing the gospel, going to church, having a close walk with God, an intimacy with him in prayer, I neglect those things. And the things that I don't want to do, meaning fall back into my sinful ways and patterns and wrath and pride and lust and whatever else, I keep falling back into those things, Paul says. The sin I don't want to do, I do. And the good that I want to do, that I don't do. He says it's confusing. I find that there's two things going on here. There's two opposite things at play. My flesh and sin and unbelief and the temptations of Satan and the spirit of Christ within me and my new nature, my new birth. I don't want to do these things and yet I do them. So you won't want to fall back into sin. You won't want to live in sin. You'll want to follow after Christ. You'll want to love Jesus. You'll want to be close with God and have intimate times in prayer where you know him and you serve him and you love him. If that's not there, you don't even know God. You don't even know God. A a true believer in the midst of his sin, when a Nathan comes to him and tells him, thou art the man, will come to a realization, will come to a realization that he is that man, that he is that person living in sin that what he is doing is wrong that he needs to turn away from his selfishness and unbelief and sin and pride and and follow after christ again for christ never left him christ was always loving him christ always had grace upon him and the arms of the father were wide open ready to put a ring on his finger shoes on his feet a cloak upon his back robe to kiss upon the cheek from the Father. That was always there, yet he went into unbelief and sin and pride and arrogance. So we won't want to do those things. A true believer will mourn that. Lord, I know what I am doing is wrong and that I should be serving thee and following thee and loving thee, but I just keep falling into sin. I keep choosing sin and unbelief over thee, over thy promises, over thy goodness, over thy callings in my life. And there will be a sorrow there. And when the chastening rod comes upon the back of a true Christian, they're thankful for it. They are hopeful, knowing that it's coming from a loving father who will certainly and infallibly save them. Not because of themselves, but because of Christ. Because of his will, his love, his goodness. God began the work, he will finish it. Christ is the author and finisher, author and perfecter of our faith. He calls us to salvation. He works the work of our salvation upon the cross. Sends us his Holy Spirit to regenerate us, save us, apply the work of salvation to us. And intercedes for us as we walk through this life by the power of the Holy Spirit to God's honor and glory and our good. That's the life of a Christian. That's why perseverance of the saints is so important. And it says, those closing words, yet they shall renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. Not not meaning renew their repentance in a works-based salvation, but renew their repentance and they'll continue to hate sin. They'll continue to have faith in Christ and they will begin walking towards him again. 
A, a Christian can every day fall into sin, the same sin over and over. But a true Christian will hate it, resent it, ask for forgiveness, try to make amends and, and do better and follow after God and might fall back into it again and again and again and again. We are sinful. We are sinners. Even as Christians, we are simul justus et peccator, as the Latins often said. We are both simultaneously justified and just and sinful at the same time until we are glorified, given our new bodies, our nature, our, our flesh is completely done away with, and we are glorified with Christ. Until then, we will struggle in this life against sin. However, we have hope and faith, knowing that he who began a good work in us shall bring it to completion. So when we fall into sin, we need to look to Christ and his certainty and infallib- the certainty and infallibility of his work on our behalf, not to self and worry if we've lost our salvation or anything else like that, but be assured that he saved us and that the the sins we did yesterday, two years ago, today, and the sins that we'll do tomorrow and next year, Lord willing, if we live that long, will all be covered and have been paid for. Repent again, believe again, continue following him. The the Christian life is a continual life of self-denial, of repentance and belief. Repent and believe, repent and believe, repent and believe, following after Christ. It never stops until we are glorified with him. That's why I love the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That's why I love it. Because it is the truth of God. Because it is God's work in us, to us, through us, and for his glory. There's nothing better. There's nothing more we want. So hopefully that was encouraging to you and that it would encourage you to grab your London Baptist Confession of Faith or the Westminster Standard, same, it's the, the same content, I'm fairly sure. And, and to study this, to read it, to read the scripture uh, proofs, to seek after God and thank him for his once and for all eternal, everlasting salvation, which he works in us as we persevere in this life in our earthly pilgrimage towards glory. Amen. God bless you.